I was born and raised in, and I still work in, uh, and have family in Missouri, and they have a new law they're trying to pass. It's still being debated that would make it a crime to seek abortion access in another state. Abortion access is changing across the country. Last year, Texas passed a law banning most abortions after six weeks. Now that law is being felt beyond the borders of Texas. Oklahoma's Republican governor, Kevin Stitt, says he's ready to approve a bill that would make performing an abortion a felony, punishable by up to 10 years in prison. And in Idaho, Republican Governor Brad Little signed a ban on abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. Overall, 529 restrictive abortion measures have been introduced in 41 states this legislative session. That's according to the Guttmacher Institute, a research and policy organization which supports abortion rights. But some states are bracing themselves to become abortion safe havens, like Vermont, where Shannon lives. I live in Vermont, and I think that our state is doing a good job of um, making sure that there will be access to abortions in the future, even if the federal law changes. And I'm really grateful to um, our state legislators for thinking ahead like that. This week, the Colorado state legislature also signed the Reproductive Health Equity Act. It declares abortion to be a, quote, fundamental right. It joins 15 other states with similar provisions. After the break, we'll hear from Colorado and Kentucky, two states taking very different approaches to the question of abortion access. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. We're discussing abortion access and how it varies across the country. This is part of our new project, Remaking America, that examines democracy and misinformation in the U.S. Joining from Colorado is Scott Franz. He is a reporter for KUNC, Northern Colorado's NPR member station, where he covers state government. Scott, welcome back to 1A. Hi, Jen. Also joining us is April Rickard, a health reporter from Louisville Public Media in Kentucky. April, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Scott, let's start in Colorado. On Monday, Colorado's governor, Jared Polis, a Democrat, signed the Reproductive Health Equity Act into law. What does this law do? Right. It it does a couple things. Um, First and foremost, it says that every Coloradan has a fundamental right to abortions. Um, Colorado is one of those states with the most access. And it also says that uh, cities and towns can't pass any bans on them. You know, this this ultimately is Colorado's way of doubling down on its access. It, it feels more and more like it's becoming um, an island in terms of its availability um, of abortion in, in the Mountain West. And um, this, this law will just basically enshrine um, the right to abortion in, in state law. Democratic representative and Colorado House Majority Leader Denea Esgar co-sponsored that bill. Here's what she had to say about it last month as the House started deliberations. No one should have their most personal medical decisions controlled by politicians like us, neighbors, or complete strangers. But that's exactly what's happening across the country. Now, Scott, Democrats in Colorado have had control of the House, the Senate, and the governorship since 2019. Why tackle this issue now? They are really concerned about what's happening at the federal level and in other states. I mean, most recently in Oklahoma, 
Um, this is trying to give some comfort to residents here who have strongly supported uh, abortion rights over and over again when it's come um, up to the ballot. And, you know, this is also an opportunity while, like you said, you know, Democrats control all the, the levers of government right now. And um, they see this as the perfect opportunity to, um, you know, reaffirm their commitment to having Colorado be a pro-choice state. Now, April, meanwhile, in Kentucky, the state legislature approved an abortion bill that would ban most abortions after 15 weeks. Here's Republican State Senator Max Wise talking about how they got to that 15-week ban. We just felt that that was the time there, uh, that gestational period that we could look at to say, you know, there is human life, uh, it, it even at that period right there. And so and that was one of the things when we saw the Mississippi bill language, we wanted to, you know, to have something in effect. The Mississippi bill he's referring to is set to be decided on by the Supreme Court in, ju- in June. April, what's included in Kentucky's abortion bill? That legislation right now is the 15 weeks almost exactly mirrors the 15-week ban in Mississippi. Um, That was folded in last week to House Bill 3, which is more than 70 pages. Overall, it would make it harder for minors uh, to get an abortion. It would restrict medication abortion, of course, ban it after 15 weeks, and it also regulates disposal of fetal remains, which opponents say would make it harder for surgical abortion to be possible. Regulates it in what way? Uh, the dis- disposal of fetal remains, it, it uh, requires that fetal remains be buried or cremated if uh, the abortion happens at a, at a clinic. Now, Kentucky's state house is controlled by Republicans, but its governor is a Democrat. What's the expectation there? Will he sign it? Well, Governor Andy Bashir has four days, including today, to veto that. It's not clear what he's going to do, but he's uh, shown opposition before to anti-abortion legislation. Uh, if he if he does veto that, the legislature can come back next week and override it. We're talking about abortion laws in Colorado and Kentucky with Scott Franz. He's a reporter covering state government for KUNC in northern Colorado, and April Rickert, a health reporter for Louisville Public Media in Kentucky. April, how would this legislation impact abortion access in Kentucky? Well, opponents to the bill say that it would basically ban it if it goes into law next week because there are so many regulations that it would make it impossible to comply in time. It has an emergency clause, which means it would go into effect if it uh, if it goes into if it's signed into law next week, um, it goes into effect next week. Now, Scott, Colorado's Reproductive Health Equity Act will also affect people from other states who travel to Colorado seeking abortions. Here's Democratic State Senator Brittany Peterson, a sponsor of the bill, talking about that impact last month after it was passed in the Senate. We have already seen a significant increase in people coming to Colorado to get the care that they need. They are driving here through the night from Texas while their kids are sleeping in the back seat because politicians have made the health care that they need illegal because they have placed a bounty on their heads. What are abortion providers in Colorado saying about the fact that the state might become a haven for people seeking abortions? Right. Well, there are preparations underway in Colorado right now um, to anticipating this, this new wave, perhaps, of um, you know, people coming to the state for abortion care. Um, Kaiser Health News, a media outlet here in Colorado, is reporting that abortion providers, especially in the the Denver area are hiring new staff. They're recruiting new staff right now based on what they're seeing um, happening in these other states and gearing up um, to, you know, 
increase the capacity. April, Kentucky's abortion bill you mentioned adds new language to state laws about providing abortions to minors. Explain a little more about what's changed there. Sure. So with this with this law, it would require a parental consent from pretty much the primary parent. And that's uh, that's in keeping with the current law right now, but it also requires that parent to try to make a good faith effort to reach the other parent. Um, there are exceptions in cases where uh, one or more of the parents um, have a history of violence or violence towards children. The minor can also seek a judicial bypass, but the uh, threshold for that is high. We got this email from Susan who says, I am almost 80, so I have seen pre-Roe abortion rights, and now whatever the Supreme Court and state legislatures will hand us, we all understand that the wealthier will be more able to travel, have time off from work, and have more support for access. Those I am most concerned about, however, are teenagers and women who need an abortion to be kept secret. April, in Kentucky, what concerns are you hearing um, from from advocates for, for reproductive rights around this issue. Yeah, well, they're saying the same thing. They're saying that uh, the people who have means will still be able to get abortions. They'll be able to travel to states like Colorado uh, where it will be protected. Uh, the people, um, maybe a single parent who's struggling, um, won't have those means. So they think a lot of people are just going to be cut off. As Colorado begins to to gear up, Scott, as you said, to become potentially an abortion safe haven. What does that preparation look like? You know, that's a great question. I haven't spent too much time, you know, looking into that. But right now, it's it's a lot of staff recruiting. It's probably a lot of um, messaging, advertising. Um, you know, state lawmakers, when they attended a bill signing ceremony earlier this week, it was, you know, it was almost like they were talking to the nation, not just residents here in Colorado, but people across the nation that, you know, this is a right that will be protected here, um, that they are very firm in their, um, you know, position that they will do anything it takes to to keep access here. So I, I think a lot of that is going to, like I said before, you know, ramping up staffing and at least for now, you know, messaging from lawmakers, you know, speaking to, um, you know, more, more regionally, you know, to other states where where access is being limited. Here's a question we got from Kokomo Kid. They tweet, don't a majority of people favor abortion rights, even in states dominated by Republicans? April, what does that landscape look like in Kentucky? Uh, according to to the latest research that I've seen, more than half, I think about 57% of Kentuckians uh, think abortion should be illegal in most cases. And, and, and so outside of most, can you give us a little more um, information about what other cases they think it should be legal in? Sure. Well, some things that are discussed, some people think it should be legal in cases of uh, if the person who is seeking an abortion, if their life might be at risk, if they don't have one, you know, if it's an emergency. Um, in some cases, rape and incest, but the House Bill 3 doesn't cover that. There's not an exception. And Scott, what about the politics of this in, in Colorado? How is that playing out among the public? Right. Well, this this has been tested many times recently. Uh, in fact, since 2008, voters have rejected four different initiatives uh, seeking to restrict abortion access uh, in Colorado. But I will say it, it does generate very emotional debate. You know, the this um, Reproductive Health Equity Act was debated on the House floor for 24 consecutive hours, um, and lawmakers had 
you know, on, on both sides of the issue had very personal um, stories, very personal positions. Um, and when this bill was in committees, hundreds of people came to the state capitol, um, you know, with, with people testifying against it, expressing concerns based on their religious beliefs. But statewide, when this has gone to the ballot and voters have had a say, um, they have overwhelmingly um, rejected attempts to restrict abortion access. Now, in November, Kentucky voters will also vote on a constitutional amendment to add a section to the Kentucky Bill of Rights stating, quote, to protect human right, nothing in this Constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to abortion or require the funding of abortion. April, any sense of how voters might respond to that? I think... uh I think based on just the political landscape of the state that they would they would approve that constitutional amendment. So as we move forward, April, what stories are you watching more closely as this plays out? I, I want to see what happens. I mean, first and foremost, what's going to happen with this bill in the coming week? After that, I want to look at what more could happen over the next few months. If Roe's overturned, that's going to ban abortion in Kentucky. So then that stopgap measure, if if those things fail, would be the November ballot. Scott, what about for you? What are you watching in Colorado? You know, I'll be interested to see if Roe is, is struck down or, or weakened. Uh, you know, will communities in Colorado that, that don't agree with the, the statewide position of protecting abortion access, you know, will they try and pass local ordinances to restrict the procedure um, you know, I'm also interested to see the impact of these other laws um, in other states. You know, we, we've already seen um, people coming here from, from Texas in particular. Um, what impact does that have on the healthcare system? What, you know, what impact? Um, we, I'm just curious to see how it plays out and, and how it affects um, our state with it becoming increasingly um, an island in terms of its access to abortion care. Are there any concerns, Scott, about larger political impacts as a result of these changes? I haven't uh, thought too much about that yet, but I, um, what I will say is that the, the ballot initiatives continue. There, there are efforts um, underway to collect signatures um, for another measure seeking to restrict abortion access, but um, you know, pr- uh, proponents of ab- abortion access are also thinking about pursuing perhaps a constitutional amendment um, to guarantee protections, you know, in a, in a stronger way than than this new state law, because even Governor Jared Polis, when he signed this new um, bill, you know, clarified that this does not change abortion policy in Colorado. It simply um, puts existing um, protections into um, state statute. That's Scott Franz. He's a reporter for KUNC in Northern Colorado, covering state government. Also with us today, April Rickert, a health reporter for Louisville Public Media in Kentucky. Scott, April, thanks for speaking with us. They both joined us as part of our Remaking America collaboration with six public media stations. In it, we explore political polarization and what Americans need to rebuild their trust in our democratic institutions. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. We're discussing changing abortion legislation across the country. Now, let's add two new voices to the conversation. Caroline Kitchener is a national politics reporter covering abortion for The Washington Post. Caroline, welcome. 
Thank you so much for having me. And Mary Ziegler is a historian and law professor at Harvard University. Mary, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So I just want to first get your reactions to what we just heard there from Scott and April. Caroline, uh, Caroline, I'll come to you first. I mean, we are seeing this play out in states all over the country. It's hard to keep track of. We just, you know, debuted a abortion legislation tracker for The Post because I spend just an enormous amount of time trying to keep track of every bill in every state. And we're just seeing very similar things in, you know, Idaho, Missouri, Oklahoma. It's, you know, it's it's staggering. Mary, what about for you? I think in some ways it's, it's staggering. In some ways it's the fulfillment of something we've seen developing for the better part of 50 years, right? So, I mean, and increasingly the laws that seem probably the furthest reaching, like Oklahoma's ban, uh, are the ones we're going to see more of because we know from history that this is what um, the anti-abortion movement has long sought. And we know that red state lawmakers um, are largely in step with that movement. So um, if anything, some of the the variation that Caroline describes is probably going to fall away and we're going to see more absolute bans with strong criminal penalties attached. Now, you mentioned Oklahoma this week that state legislature passed a near total abortion ban that the state's Republican governor is expected to sign. Mary, why is that such a significant move? Well, I think to some degree, uh, we've been in a world where lots of states have either been passing bills that are intended to be vehicles for the Supreme Court to revisit Roe v. Wade, or that have intended to chip away at abortion access, or that have intended to kind of do the maximum a state can do Um, and the Supreme Court will sign off. Oklahoma is a sign of what states will do when Roe v. Wade is no longer with us. In other words, what what red states would like to do in an ideal world, not what they feel constrained to do in a world where Roe v. Wade is still a precedent. So increasingly, it's significant because it's our first window into what's going to change um, in a post-Roe America, and that's a place we may be um, as soon as this June. Uh, Caroline, we've been talking about how abortion laws are are changing state to state. There have been about 529 abortion restrictions introduced in 41 states this year. That's according to the Guttmacher Institute, an organization that supports abortion rights. We talked about how a new abortion bill in Kentucky is modeled after a law passed in Mississippi. How are you seeing legislation that's passing in, in different states connecting to one another? There are a lot of patterns that we were able to identify pretty early on in this legislative session. One is exactly as you mentioned, there have been a couple of states with bills that have have all moved, um, passing a law that looks pretty much exactly like the law that's before the Supreme Court. And the thinking behind that is, you know, I've talked to, you know, a lot of anti-abortion legislators that say, you know, we're doing that so that we can have a law in place that is the most likely to be able to immediately take effect as soon as the Supreme Court rules. So that's one really big trend that we're seeing. Another one that I would call out are bills that are modeled after the restrictive Texas law that took effect in September. We're seeing a lot of states, gosh, I think now it's up to 13 states that have introduced legislation that you know, really follows that law very closely. Um, you know, that law has been able to sort of get around the courts in a way that other laws just haven't been able to. So, so a lot of anti-abortion lawmakers have been paying attention to that. 
We got this question from Ian, who emails, My state of Florida will soon join many other states in banning abortion after 15 weeks. The screening for many fetal abnormalities is only possible at 16 weeks. Is the 15-week limit intended to preclude mothers and couples from making abortion decisions based on this kind of medical information? Caroline, what have you found? That's a great question. I spent some time in Tallahassee as they were debating this very bill. And that's what a lot of people said. Um, There was this one day where a lot of abortion providers came to the Capitol and they shared stories of women with fetal abnormalities who didn't know until after that you know, 15-week mark. And they told really, you know, in some cases, really heart-wrenching stories about what it was like to find out about that and, you know, just how they would feel if they no longer had the ability to have an abortion at that point. Mary, I want to turn back to Oklahoma's um, near total abortion ban. What challenges are you expecting to see there? Well, I think in the short term, we'll expect to see successful court challenges because as long as Roe v. Wade is still the law, um, there's no question that this bill is unconstitutional. So what this bill represents is essentially a gamble by Oklahoma legislators that the Supreme Court will overrule uh, Roe v. Wade in a case now before the court, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Um, So the question is not really whether courts will say the Oklahoma law is okay today because it's not. The question is whether it's just a matter of time until it's allowed to go into effect. And that's not an unreasonable gamble by Oklahoma legislators, given the kinds of signals the Supreme Court has been sending. Meanwhile, we have states like Colorado, which are enshrining abortion rights into state law in case Roe v. Wade is overruled, and it joins 15 states with similar measures in place. Mary, what do you make of the idea that some states are are preparing to provide refuge to abortion seekers. It's really significant. And it it also sets the stage for what are likely to be post-Roe constitutional battles because um, a bill not that hasn't been passed yet, but introduced in Missouri tries to um, regulate or prevent people from delivering abortion services to folks from Missouri, even when those doctors are out of state. And I think we're likely to see more interstate conflicts of this kind. And they're going to raise all kinds of complicated questions about which state's laws apply? Who gets to decide? Can states constitutionally prohibit people from leaving the state to get abortion um, without violating the Constitution? And a lot of these questions don't have straightforward answers. So what all of this means, I think, is that we're quite likely to see a continuation of battles about abortion. This is not going to be a world where each state gets to do its own thing and that de-escalates the conflict. Um, I think the opposite is likely to be true. Here's an email we received from Ebony who says, I live in Missouri. I am pro-choice and I chose to have all of my children. In my experience, pro-life legislators do not support life after birth. They do not support child care, family health care, family nutrition, housing needs, paid leave. Every time I had a child, it cost me money, time off work, career changes, and it set my family back financially. We got this email from Linda who says, are any of these states outlawing abortion, adding money for child care, education, or any other support for families. Caroline, is that is that a question you've explored? And if so, what have you found? 
It's a great question. Now, pretty much every time I talk to an anti-abortion lawmaker, I ask them about this question, kind of generally, you know, for women who are not able to afford to raise their child in the way that they want to, kind of what resources are there available to them? Um, What are you doing to help them? And almost across the board, they will reference crisis pregnancy centers. These are anti-abortion organizations, often faith-based organizations that are created to, one, uh, dissuade people from having abortions, but also to um, give diapers, give you know various other resources to mothers. Um, and, and what you're seeing across the country um, in anti-abortion states are huge sums of money, millions and millions of dollars being allotted to these places. So this is really the answer that you are getting from anti-abortion legislators. What are you doing to help women? Well, we are funding these kinds of institutions. Now, the abortion rights advocates would say, these institutions are doing very, very little to help women. You know, they will, um, you know, give them some diapers, you know, give them, um, you know, a parenting class and then kind of send them on their way. So uh, both sides have really strong feelings about these kinds of organizations. We also got this email, this uh, question from Jim who emails, this rash of anti-abortion laws also attacks women's access to contraception. That strongly indicates a clear move to control women's bodies and choices. There is no other explanation Caroline, what are we seeing around that issue, access to contraception? Well, we haven't seen, I mean, and and I think Mary should speak to this as well, but we haven't seen a whole lot of legislative movement in that direction. What you have seen are uh, Republican lawmakers coming out and referencing this, you know, court case, Supreme Court case precedent, um, Griswold v. Connecticut, which is a court case that centers around birth control. You heard Marsha Blackburn call that into question ahead of the recent um, Supreme Court nomination hearings. So um, it's, you know, it's it's something that sort of seems to maybe be percolating a little bit under the surface. And I'm watching very closely to see, is there going to be legislation proposed that could potentially try to limit birth control. Perry, I want you to remind us about the the case that's in front of the Supreme Court right now, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, and what's at the heart of, of this case? Yeah, so in its most simple terms, Dobbs is about the constitutionality of Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, which uh, contains very few exceptions at, at that point in pregnancy for folks seeking abortions. Um, Originally, uh, that was what the case was going to be about. But after Amy Coney Barrett joined the court, Mississippi quite clearly wanted to make the case about whether the Supreme Court should completely undo the idea of a right to choose abortion. And at oral argument in December, that seemed to be where most of the conservative justice were, were going with this. So not only to say that you could ban abortions before viability, which is the law now. You can't ban abortion before viability or the point at which there's a reasonable chance of survival outside of the womb, but that you can ban abortion at any point in pregnancy. And at the moment, 
that seems to be the most likely outcome that we'll see coming out of the Supreme Court uh, when it issues a decision in the Dobbs case by the end of June. Marcia emails, My sister and I graduated from high school in the 1960s. We had a friend who in 1970 was found dead on a basement floor in Minneapolis after a horrible attempt at an amateur abortion. I worry this is the future. And here's a message we got from a listener in Louisiana. My name is Deborah, and I'm calling from New Orleans. Louisiana has also instituted some rather draconian laws with regard to women's body autonomy. And I believe that the media and everyone needs to reframe the wording of this problem to that of women's body autonomy. Men demand body autonomy for themselves, and women should be demanding it for themselves as well. Uh, Caroline, I'm, I'm curious to hear your response to what Deborah's saying there and whether you've seen any attempt to reframe the discussion. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 first, uh, the first note that you read really speaks directly to my reporting last week when I was in Oklahoma. Um, they're already, because of the laws, clinics are, you know, they've, they've stopped some of them scheduling appointments and people are not able to get in. And I was in an abortion clinic last week with a woman who said, you know, I tried one clinic and then I tried another clinic. I couldn't get in anywhere. And when I couldn't get in anywhere, I opened a private browser on my computer and I Googled alternatives to abortion. And I started reading about, you know, physical implements that I could use, you know, things that I could do to myself to cause an abortion. And Gosh, that was hard to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really hard to hear. And, you know, I, I, I she said, you know, I, I was lucky I was able to get in. But if I hadn't have been able to get in, I would have found a way. Now, I will say that this is not the 1970s. This is not the 1960s. We now have a lot of, uh, you know, technology in this area has advanced. So there are now, you know, medication abortion, abortion pills, which are, you know, extremely safe if taken correctly. And so you see a lot of um, abortion rights advocates trying to get the word out about how to, you know, get abortion pills over the internet, how to, um, you know, take those pills safely. So, you know, we are not back in the time of, you know, pre-Roe when it comes to alternatives to abortion. But I think without a doubt, if abortion is made illegal, you are going to see women trying to figure out what else they can do. Here's an email we got from Melanie who says, I am pro-life and think that means also being pro-family. In other words, I support expanded free or very lost co- low-cost pre- and postnatal care, paid family leave, free preschool, and low-cost daycare. Our children are our most precious resource for the future of our nation. Our politicians who claim to be pro-life must also support these measures, which support parents and families. Mary, I wanted to get your thoughts about the the idea we heard in that voicemail that the framing of this really needs to be more about bodily autonomy and whether you you see a a future for that. Yeah, I mean, I think in a post-Roe America, we're going to see a lot of debate about framing altogether because to some extent, um, you know, the Roe decision has sort of been the elephant in the room for 50 years and a lot of conversations have been framed around it. And if it's gone, I think people who are, you know, identify as pro-life or pro-choice are going to have to think about what they want the world to look like going forward rather than what they think should happen to Roe v. Wade. Um, and autonomy is certainly one of the ways people are going to do that. They might talk about equality. They might talk about dignity. They might talk about 
you know, on you could imagine on the pro-life or anti-abortion side, they might talk about fetal rights. Like there, there are a lot of things that I think will be opened up potentially in terms of how we think about these issues. Um, and I think, again, you know, where those conversations go remains to be seen. And, and as we said, the, the June Supreme Court decision isn't likely to be the end of the fight over abortion rights. How do you see this state versus state conflict playing out, Mary? It's really unpredictable because it, it deals with two areas of constitutional law that are very underdeveloped, um, one involving um, states' ability or, you know, the harm states can do to commerce in other states, uh, as well as the constitutional right to travel. And even the principles that govern, you know, when a state can regulate conduct outside of its own boundaries um, using its criminal laws, even that's unsettled. So we're in for a lot more uncertainty, which, of course, will create a lot more fighting. So um, one of, I think, the things that's that's quite clear, um, Mississippi, in its brief to the Supreme Court, essentially says, you know, if you overrule Roe v. Wade, this will all be over and we can go on and think about other things. And I think regardless of what you think about the rights or wrongs of abortion, you should recognize that that's a disingenuous statement and that nothing that the Supreme Court can do can put an end to our conflict about abortion. Uh, it, it may put us in a new chapter of that conflict, but there's no way this is going to be over in June. That's Mary Ziegler, a historian and law professor at Harvard University. Also with us, Caroline Kitchener, national politics reporter covering abortion for The Washington Post. Caroline, Mary, thanks. This conversation is part of our Remaking America collaboration, where we explore political polarization and what Americans need to rebuild their trust in our democratic institutions. You heard from two of our six partner stations today, KUNC, NPR for Northern Colorado, and Louisville Public Media. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.